dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. I love you, 1940s band singer, but in a purely spiritual way. <laughs> this is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a paragon of power in a pitiless world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. <laughs> and who am I? Well, I am Dr. Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. Here's my wonderful co-host, Nurse Amy. Hi, Amy Alton. I'm a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. She's so sharp, she mows along with her teeth. That's how oh. sharp she is. She's incredible. <laughs> Just kidding. We don't believe in lawns. We grow food. Grow oh, food, y'all. That's true. No, that's we do right. have a little bit of grass. <laughs> hey, on this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, plus, absolutely free, the unhinged ravings of a man who routinely drools on his shoes. <laughs> But hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble, you're going to hear it right here. But first, got to listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please. Or don't if you've got an in with Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un or... Iranian ayatollahs, but answer me this, who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when the you-know-what really hits the fan and hospitals are out of commission, the doctors are gone, and someone you care about is sick or injured? Can't happen, you say? Sure, whatever you say, brah. Brah, you mean bro, <laughs> bro brah. Bro, <laughs> Hey, but don't be looking at me, I'm just a piano player. It's you, old buddy, old pal. You and I both know that when it's least expected, you're going to be elected. So get off your duff, learn some stuff. Why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I bet Amy can tell you where you can find some. Sure. It's store.doomandbloom.net. That's right. Or actually you can try, you can go on altonfirstaid.com. It takes you to the same store website. And it right. might be easier to remember or type, but we have lots of hand-packed first aid kits designed by yours truly, plus the grand old doctor here. That's right. And emphasis on the old. <laughs> so we're back. No, I said old, not old. I hope I it didn't come out old. I oh, meant O L E. I see. <laughs> hey, you know, we're back from Gatlinburg, Tennessee, where we spend the fall, and back in sunny South Florida actually came out with a few little cool weather days. Oh, my goodness down gracious. Here, which is a bit of a shock. I mean, I'd rather be in snow, but. I guess once you'd get me in snow. Uh, <laughs> you'd be too after, cold. After the first snowman gets built, I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of snowmen, Skyhorse Publishing has picked up Amy and my first children's book, a heartwarming origin story about how the first snowman came to be. Yes. Well, Skyhorse owns Skypony, which is totally cute, and they're the ones who published the children's books section. Oh, that's right. So it's yeah. a Skypony book? Yes, it says Skypony on it, but well, they're cute. owned by Skyhorse. <laughs> which is very cute. Hey, if you've got kids, you want to read them this Christmas story. Remember, kids who are read to develop better listening and social skills. They have beneficial effects on IQ and vocabulary that last well into their teens. That means higher SAT scores and better colleges for your kids. You know, you're going to love the art from our talented illustrator, Cheryl Krauthammel. She did such an incredible job 
We are so proud of her. And oh, every cent, by the way, of author royalties from, from sales of our book, which is called Snowby, the First Snowman, will go to disabled veterans charities. And if you've got a favorite, let us know at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Yes, in 2023. That's right. Uh, also, I want to mention that the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook ranks a whopping 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon over more than 2,800 reviews and is still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. Yes, and you had a special bestselling list. That's right, yes. Now the Bookstat and HotSheetPub.com lists have come out and they have the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook as the 19th best-selling print book that is self-published in the entire country. I know. Incredible. So that's something. We were only two under Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah, that's right, which is a very famous, famous book. Yep. If you haven't checked it out yet, I want you to look for the black and white version. It's on Amazon, the color version that's store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website. Yep. Well, we're heading into the cold and flu season with all the various viruses floating around. You had better know something about them. Respiratory Infection Central, that's the People's Republic of China is grappling with a surge in respiratory illnesses, including pneumonia, in children. The World Health Organization said last week that common winter infections, rather than any new pathogens, are behind the spike in hospitalizations. A surge of infections was expected in the country this winter, which is China's first without COVID-19 restrictions. What's unusual is the high amount of pneumonia cases in China. Well, There's certainly going to be influenza, RSV, and COVID around this winter, but when I first wrote about a new pneumonia coming out of China, it turned out to be a new pathogen, COVID, that didn't even have a name yet, but had given a total of 60 people pneumonia, and nobody had died of it yet. That was January 7th, 2020. My article was called A New Pneumonia, and you can check it out. It's still on the website. And since then, we've had a total of 700 million cases of COVID, 7 million deaths. Well, you can understand why I don't necessarily believe that it's the usual viral suspects in China, or really much of anything else that comes out of China. Today, I want to talk about various causes of pneumonia, especially bacterial pneumonia, and also maybe a couple of other things known as epiglottitis and also whooping cough, something that we haven't heard from in quite a while. There are things that the survival medic may have to deal with, though, so it's important for us to learn a little bit about them. Bacterial pneumonia has been called the old man's friend because it stops the suffering of the elderly. And guess how it does that? By ending their lives. Well, there are many different microbes that cause pneumonia and bronchitis. Uh, The incubation period for most lower respiratory infections, that means the time that it takes between being exposed to a particular bacteria and actually starting to get symptoms, that's the incubation period. And the incubation period for most lower respiratory infections is only about three, one to three days. That means that you'll begin to experience ill effects from the disease pretty darn soon after you're first exposed. Whether it's bacterial or viral in origin, fever is a common symptom of respiratory infections. Temperatures may tend to get higher and worse over time when bacteria is the cause. You might have a very high fever and it may get worse over time rather than better just on its own. With a viral infection, fevers usually improve after a few days. Now, if there's a period of improvement followed by the return of a fever even higher than the original fever, well, that may signal that your viral illness is over, but you got infected secondarily with bacteria, especially if you have some kind of other illness or you're 
an old, old man like myself. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about lung anatomy. Lungs have these little bitty air sacs that are at the end of tiny airways called bronchioles. The air sacs are called alveoli. They go to the bronchioles. The bronchioles go to the bronchi, which are the bigger airways, and they go up to your windpipe, which is also known as a trachea. Going all the way down to the lung tissue itself, the alveoli, these are sacs of air, essentially, that absorb oxygen when you inhale. And in pneumonia, alveoli become filled with fluid, inflammatory fluid with all sorts of bacteria in it and white blood cells and you know, your body's effort to try to take care of it and deal with it, all of this winds up making it difficult to transport oxygen to body tissues. You have trouble absorbing oxygen because these air sacs are now just filled with fluid. So the symptoms you classically see with this include things like cough. We talked about fever. Phlegm is usually, and mucus, usually very, very common. Shortness of breath and, of course, chest pain that goes along with having difficulty breathing. Bronchitis happens when the airways that carry oxygen from your windpipe to your lungs become inflamed. So you're not going all the way down into the alveoli, but you're in the bronchus or maybe even to the bronchioles, the little bitty airways that actually physically attach to the alveoli. When this happens, the lining becomes clogged with mucus and it causes coughing and more of a wheezing. You hear like wheezing sounds as and sort of musical sounds almost as you are listening with a stethoscope. Of course, there is phlegm that also occurs. This is usually, well, if it's bacterial, usually yellowish or grayish. Although, honestly, a lot of respiratory infections may be associated with a certain color of mucus, but it's not always a sure diagnosis. So the yellow sputum may be associated with bronchitis, but the phlegm is just as likely to be whitish or grayish in color. Yellow sputum can also be a sign of pneumonia, and even you might see it with non-infectious conditions. Things like asthma may give you a yellowish kind of mucus that gets stuck there and it's hard to get out. Many different bacteria have been implicated as the pathogen, the disease-causing organism, that's a pathogen, in pneumonia, but a few are much more common than others. It should be noted that without lab studies, though, many pneumonias caused by different pathogens sort of appear pretty similar. They actually sort of appear like the flu with a very deep cough and lasts a long time. It's sometimes a challenge to choose the right therapy here, and that is indeed a problem. Let's talk about a few types of bacterial pneumonia. Besides the usual signs and symptoms I just mentioned, there are some additional clues to some of them that might help make the diagnosis and help you decide what treatment would make the most sense. There is something called streptococcus pneumonia, and a lot of people refer to it as pneumococcal pneumonia. And so it's associated with a bacteria called streptococcus. And this looks a little different in that it's usually associated with sort of rusty colored phlegm. And so the mucus comes out, looks sort of rusty colored. That's because there are some red blood cells in it, not enough to make it frankly bloody, but it makes it look sort of rusty colored. It's the most common type, honestly, of bacterial pneumonia. Not the most common type of, of pneumonia, but the most common type of bacterial pneumonia. And it is something that you would treat primarily with the drugs in the penicillin families. But, you know, nowadays there are so many resistant strains. You might actually be better off taking a sulfa drug, uh, an erythromycin or a Zithromax Z-Pack for it, or even something like Cipro, although Cipro does have a number of side effects that could be dangerous. Talk, it's something we talk about in the book, as a matter of fact. Uh, all of those the drugs that I just mentioned and all of the risks and side effects and the, and the reasons for which you might use them. Uh, then there's another kind of pneumonia called Legionella. And you may have heard of the 
uh, veterans from foreign legions who got together in Philadelphia and wound up a bunch of them getting sick, a number of them dying from an unusual pneumonia. It was first identified, I think this was in the 70s or early 80s. And that is not only associated with lung symptoms, but also associated with abdominal pain, with diarrhea. Uh, in old folks, they wind up getting dehydrated and, and therefore become confused. That's what killed a lot of these veterans of foreign wars, uh, VFW guys, because they're, of course, they were, were in World War II or Korea and they were older folks. Uh, so this is something that we're seeing more and more often, by the way, in big cities, especially in housing projects because of contamination of cooling units that they have in the top of these big giant uh, high-rises where they, uh, thousands of people live. And so something like that, for something like that, you would use uh, a Z-Pak or an erythromycin. That family of drugs is called macrolides, and we talk about those in the book as well. That would be a reasonable choice for that particular type of, of pneumonia. Then there's Klebsiella pneumonia. That is associated with a very dark, bloody, frankly bloody sputum. Looks like cherry preserves, as a matter of fact. That's how what it looks like. That's how much blood is in it. And the funny thing is that Klebsiella is actually a, a normal inhabitant of your intestines. There's also some uh, strains of it on your skin. Uh, and it's perfectly fine there, actually. A very normal inhabitant there, but it's dangerous if it invades lung tissues. So that is something that is a big problem. That, that can be life-threatening. They do suggest uh, Cipro or flu other fluoroquinolones in that circumstance, but usually you need intravenous antibiotics, antibiotics that you really can't get without a prescription. There's mycoplasma pneumonia. You probably have heard of walking pneumonia, and that's caused by a particular type of bacteria that's called mycoplasma. And that's associated uh, with swelling of lymph nodes in your neck, some joint pain, could have ear symptoms. These are things that you usually don't see with regular pneumonia. And the symptoms don't ever seem to get severe enough to cause a person to become completely bedridden. And so that's why they call it walking pneumonia. Now, mycoplasma is a type of species of bacteria. We talk about that in the book also. Uh, that differ from other bacteria in that they lack a cell wall. Now, why does that matter? Microscopically, if you don't have a cell wall, well, there are some there are some antibiotics like penicillin that work to kill bacteria by disrupting the cell wall. <clears throat> Mycoplasma doesn't have a cell wall to disrupt, disrupt, so it's naturally resistant to penicillin-related drugs. So for that, you'd also want something like a Z-Pak Azithromycin, um, um, uh, bird zithro, or uh, erythromycin, fish mycin, those would be preferable for that. Then there's Haemophilus influenza. That looks like a cold at first. Uh, it has low grade fevers, but it goes to the lungs in a few days, and then you start having difficulty breathing, some wheezing. The sputum has a tendency to be sort of grayish or beige in color. And this one also is a long-term thing. It's like a walking pneumonia, except you don't feel like walking. Uh, a cough can persist for weeks, honestly, unless you treat it. And for this, they're still using uh, penicillin-related drugs, uh, but sulfur drugs and tetracycline family drugs like doxycycline, uh, the Cipro family drugs, and the Zithromax or erythromycin antibiotics are also options for that. 
why am I mentioning all these individual bacterial species and their signs? Because very simply, different antibiotics are used based on the type. The ones that I mentioned are the ones that have specific symptoms that may point you in their direction. And if you use the antibiotics that I mentioned for that, you'll find all this in our book. Well, in that case, you would have a better shot at helping your patient, maybe a loved one, recover. So those are things that are very, very important. Scenarios where there is no chance of a lab study being done, you might want to consider, of course, there are penicillin family drugs, but maybe Keflex has a little bit of cross-reactivity with penicillin. It's in the same family, sort of. There's about a 10% cross-reactivity, so if you're allergic to penicillin, there's about 10% of people allergic to penicillin will be allergic to Keflex, or Cephalexin is what its actual name is. Azithromycin, sulfur drugs, all these things may be acceptable in scenarios where you're wondering what it is that is actually going on. Resistance to amoxicillin and some other penicillin family drugs is leading us to use them less often, at least in the U.S., because of resistance, a big issue. And, of course, in severe cases of pneumonia, usually they use intravenous drugs, and that's one of the hard realities that you're just going to have to deal with is that some people may die of pneumonia that ordinarily would not have if there was modern medicine available. Of course, as you know, we write about situations where you are plain old off the grid. Some disaster knocked you off the grid and you are on your own. There's other respiratory infections that are primarily bacterial. One is called epiglottitis. Now, what's the epiglottis? That's a structure at the base of your tongue that works as a valve that prevents food from going down your windpipe as you eat or drink. When the epiglottis becomes infected, it can swell up. When it swells up, well, gosh, it could be very dangerous and could block your airways. This is uh, something more common in kids, but we're increasingly seeing it in adults, and it represents a true emergency in both groups. Adult cases seem to develop a little more slowly than pediatric ones, though, so you may have some time to be able to treat that or be more successful in treating it with antibiotics. Epiglottitis can start showing symptoms as soon as uh, one to three days after exposure to the bacteria. And the symptoms usually include things like high fever, a very sore throat, difficulty breathing, a hoarse voice. If you have a little kid with a hoarse voice, then you know you maybe have an epiglottitis there. And people are agitated, they can't breathe, so they are freaking out. So this is one of those things that maybe some of you may have had kids who had croup. I had both, all my kids had croup and we had to take care of them. That's also called laryngotracheobronchitis. And that is... Well, that's a mouthful. Inf- it sure is. But it's really a throat full. It's a throat full. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the thing with croup is that it's usually caused mm-hmm. by a virus, but in some cases, staph or strep or hemophilus may be involved in rare bacterial cases. Uh, epiglottitis, that's treated by third-generation cephalosporins intravenously, usually, but in austere settings where modern IV therapy is not an option. Well, maybe sometimes clindamycin. Uh, might be considered as a possibility, although swallowing difficulties might make the strategy of using oral medicines at all problematic. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hello, friends. Are you feeling down? Don't have that gusto like you used to? Has your get-up-and-go got up and went? Well, consider the wholesome goodness of Prevalaxian Balance, a healthy mix of fruits, vegetables, sleep aids, Adderall, and Alzheimer's drugs in one tiny capsule barely the size of your thumb. Made from probiotic macronutrients processed down to a fine ash over a Native American campfire, Prevalaxian Balance will give you the pep you need to run that marathon and get a good night's sleep 10 minutes later, or maybe even during. 
Mix with water and you can use it to seal that hole in your canoe. Mix with balsamic vinegar and put it on your salad. Prevalaxian Balance, your natural road to good health, a better night's sleep, and a higher IQ. Available wherever cure-alls are sold. Well, let's see. What else do I have? I've got a whooping cough. Whooping cough, you know, also called pertussis. That's an infection of the airways caused by a bacteria called Bordetella pertussis. You don't see it too often because a lot of people get their kids vaccinated against it. It is a pretty nasty thing. What happens is the, the germ attaches to the lining of the upper respiratory tract, you know, your windpipe and your back of your throat and things like that, and releases all these toxins and that causes swelling. So we're seeing more and more of these cases being reported in certain parts of the U.S., probably because some people aren't vaccinating their kids so much anymore. This kind of infection after an average of about seven to 10 days after you've been exposed to it, pertussis will sort of begin like a cold or a flu-like syndrome. You know, it has all the usual things, nasal congestion, a low-grade fever, a mild cough. One of the funny things is that if you see it in kids, they have a little bit of apnea. You know what sleep apnea is. You stop breathing for a short period of time. That happens in kids that get sick with this whooping cough thing with pertussis. Uh, after one or two weeks of that, what happens is pertussis becomes full-blown and it really gets bad. You get violent coughing fits that we call paroxysms. If you ever heard this, these occur fast and furious, so much so that all the air in the lungs is expended. And when that happens, you got to breathe, breathe in and it causes a high-pitched whooping sound and it is terrible. A lot of patients vomit and they cough so much that these poor people become totally exhausted and become more likely to have other infections opportunistically come in. Resolving this infection is sort of slow but can occur with antibiotics like with like azithromycin, erythromycin, uh, sulfa drugs may shorten the amount of time that somebody's at least contagious. It is highly contagious, by the way. It passes from person to person in air droplets. Just from the sheer number of coughing fits, there's just all of this mucus and stuff droplets in the air, and a lot of people get coughing. You really need to isolate these people for at least two weeks after they start the cough. As a matter of fact, it, recovery may take 10 weeks or more. In China, they call whooping cough the 100-day cough. That's the name of the wow. disease in China. Adult and teenagers seem to have a little milder disease, disease course than young children, but of course, it really could kill young children, sadly, in some serious times. I mentioned something about having to guess a little bit mm -hmm. about what you're going to use as an antibiotic to get rid of a particular infection. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of times in normal times in modern medicine, you've got all these lab studies and you can send a sample of the phlegm right. to the laboratory and in a day or two, they give you a presumptive diagnosis and they not only give you a presumptive diagnosis, okay, this is strep, or this mm -hmm. is Klebsiella, or this is whatever bacteria, but they'll also give you a list of antibiotics that'll kill it. Which is amazing. And the symptoms that you're discussing. And, and knowing the name of the species of bacteria, for uh -huh. example, that's causing a problem, and having a list of the antibiotics that will kill it, that is what's known as definitive therapy. In other words, you know that it, your infection is caused by X, this bug. X, right. Right. X bacteria. And you know that right. X antibiotic will get rid of it. Right. Well, guess what you're not going to have if you ever wind up getting knocked off the grid because of some disaster. Not going to have any of that. Right. And so you're never going there to really have. There won't be these have... fancy little machines and there won't be those laboratories that all of the, our lab studies 
when you have blood drawn, there's different ones, LabCorp, Quest, maybe even in your doctor's office or the hospital, those things get sent to a laboratory that has all kinds of amazing machines. Maybe your blood gets spun down, it gets separated, right. goes through all of these machines that are looking at it like and yeah. maybe growing things. And it's just incredible what happens. And in the end of that, sometimes within a very short period of time, minutes, they have lab results for you. But we may not have those. That's right. That exactly. is the scary thing. And so definitive therapy goes out the window, and what you're left with is your knowledge is your knowledge of symptoms, of the physical signs. That's why I mentioned a certain number of different antibiotics, uh, uh, bacterial species, not because you're going to be able to look at somebody and say they've you got have, a bacterial, right. they've got this bacteria, but because of the specific symptoms that those bacteria have that are a little Point different two. than just standard pneumonia. And there's subtle differences sometimes. Right, very sometimes subtle. Sometimes it's not even easy, and we do discuss this in the book, about whether to know if someone has an actual bacterial infection, which should be treatable with an antibiotic or a couple of different choices, or it's viral. And your choices off the grid are going to be very limited. Okay, enough of that. Now for a word from our sponsor. Hey, today's youth. Are you hip to get down with groovy new tunes? Have you gone through your goth, hippie, rapper, and teenage vampire phases and ready to listen to something really original? Well, Old Dr. Bones has put out a brand new album of rad, dope, illin' sounds that can't be beat. Be the star of the rave when you bring this collection of awesome music and, of course, all those drugs to the next neighborhood block party. You'll hear Dr. Bones' rendition of great songs like Like a Virgin, Funky Cold Medina, Who Let the Dogs Out, I Like Big Butts, the Ukrainian National Anthem, and the theme from Star Trek, and many more. Dig these happening sounds sung by Dr. Bones, the world's oldest hip-hop street poet. You'll be glad you did. Bones Tones, available at fine music stores everywhere. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Oh, and also co-author of the brand new heartwarming Christmas story, Snowbee, the First Snowman, published by Skyhorse Publishing. That's our first children's bedtime storybook. How about that? Well, anyhow, today I would like to talk about bartering in survival settings. Every so often, people ask me about the importance of things like precious metals for barter purposes in a collapse. Now, there's no reason not to have some silver or gold if you can afford it, but there's something you should know if you're counting on it in a post-apocalyptic economy. Precious metals would be useful as barter only in the early stages of a long-term disaster or after some amount of restabilization later on. Other items like food and medical supplies have more general trading power. In the early days after civilization has been taken over the brink, people haven't yet realized that money may be worthless in terms of long-term survival. In these circumstances, your paper money may actually have some value, but you can imagine more and more is going to be needed to buy tangible assets. This happened in post-World War I Germany, where you needed a wheelbarrow of paper money to buy a loaf of bread. It's important to know that currency is only paper, as evidenced by the government's apparent ease of printing it whenever they desire. Survivalists will realize this before long. Of course, you could, I suppose, use a nice wad of it to get a fire started or as bathroom tissue. But then, for a while, silver and gold will replace paper money. The amount of time you'll be able to use your coinage will vary with the speed of the collapse. 
But soon enough, even gold and silver will just be pretty hunks of metal. Maybe useful, again, once society has restabilized somewhat. Food, defensive items, and medical supplies are eventually going to become the most valuable surplus items that you can have for successful trading. If you live in a very dry climate, add water to that list. Let's talk about food as barter. Face it, once the supermarket shelves are empty, food's going to be on everybody's mind. Those who have experienced hunger is going to tell you how difficult it is to think of pretty much anything else. The answer is to grow your own food, right? Few, however, have the seeds or the knowledge of how to grow their own vegetables, let's say. Even fewer have success producing enough for their families, not to mention a mutual assistance group. you got to know that gardening has a learning curve that's subject to the whims of the weather, such as the amount of rainfall, storms, extremes in temperatures, soil conditions, pests, even human vandals are a factor. Despite the challenges, you need to learn how to be successful growing food. If you can do that, you have some real bartering power. Although Nurse Amy and I happen to be fortunate to live near sources of fresh water, availability isn't the only issue. Untreated water could be a death sentence from disease causing organisms. Materials to purify it, even just sodium hypochlorite, that's household bleach, could be highly useful for bartering with knowledgeable survivors. Unfortunately, that loses potency in 6 to 12 months, the liquid bleach. What you would prefer to have is a supply of calcium hypochlorite crystals used in pool additives like pool shock. That'll last longer and it's easier to portion out. Properly stored, calcium hypochlorite has a shelf life of over five years. Now here's how to disinfect water with calcium hypochlorite. You add one heaping teaspoon of the chemical to two gallons of water and stir. That makes, not something you can drink, it makes a bleach solution. Then you add one pint of the bleach solution to, let's say, 12 and a half gallons of water or a half liter to every 50 liters of water to make it potable. Essentially, you're making drinkable water by adding one part of chlorine mixture to each hundred parts of water. Pouring the water from one container to another seems to decrease the chlorine taste that people notice. Don't forget you have to wait a good 30 minutes to allow it to work its magic. Let's talk about ammunition as barter. I know that Jay Wesley Rawls thinks a lot about having ammunition as your main barter item. Now, items for defense are going to be very important indeed in survival settings. I totally admit that. If you're planning on accumulating ammo as barter, try to figure out what calibers are most popular in your area. In some most states, 9mm is the most popular handgun round, and for rifle rounds, it's usually the 223, 5.56 NATO. Encounters in survival settings for bartering ammunition can be pretty risky, however, as some Buddy can simply complete the transaction by loading their firearm with your items and, well, you know the rest. This is always going to be a possibility. As a matter of fact, it's naive to think that you wouldn't be a target for the desperate or unscrupulous. Therefore, any barter meeting should be undertaken only with plenty of backup. If the product to be traded is ammunition, it should be packaged so solidly that it can't be accessed until you're far away. Now, how about medical supplies as barter? Food ammunition seem natural barter items, so why would medical supplies have trade value? The reason is pretty simple. You can easily make a wound with a weapon, but few are going to have the items necessary to heal a wound. Having bandages, antibiotics, blood clotting agents, other medical materials are unique and irreplaceable goods in a dangerous world without hospitals and emergency rooms. These items, and the knowledge to use them, will become important materials and services both in the short and the long term. You can never have too many medical supplies in your survival storage. You'd be surprised how many dressings one major bleed will actually consume. Now don't forget that you won't be dealing with wound care just until you get the patient to the hospital. There is no hospital. 
You're going to be in charge from beginning to end in a true survival scenario. So for any lengthy event, that means you'll use up a lot of medical supplies just changing wound dressings. So bandaging materials, antiseptics, other wound care items, these are going to be highly valuable. Antibiotics will be as well. I've written for over a decade on the importance of antibiotics to avoid unnecessary deaths in survival settings. Veterinary antibiotic equivalents are not as easily found these days, but are still available online at places like fishmoxfishflex.com and others. Some people note that many antibiotics are now by prescription only from a vet. But that applies, and this is important for you to know, that applies mostly to food-producing livestock, not your pet guppy. You can get fish antibiotics still at these places online. You can also get human antibiotics through a number of services that are popping up here and there, but you probably can't get them in mass quantities like you could some fish antibiotics. But it's not just medical items. Let's take the value of your medical knowledge as a trade item. Not everybody knows how to stop bleeding or splint an injury, perform long-term wound care, or treat infection. If you're the medic, your services have a value. What do you think that value would be in circumstances where a family has a child who's sick or injured? I mean, this is a compelling argument for taking the time and effort needed to learn medical skills. That doesn't mean that you should expect something in return every time you help someone in medical need. The value of goodwill in a survival community should not be underestimated. Grateful parents, if they're able, will want to reward you in some way for saving a child's life. In this way, volunteering your services may increase the chances for your own family's survival. Your skills may be deemed so valuable that you may become an important asset to a community, one whose members will expend resources to protect. If you spend enough time off the grid, it stands to reason that all the commercial supplies are going to run out, so a knowledge of herbalism will come in pretty handy here. An understanding of what plants in your area may have medicinal value will help cement your long-term value to the group. So, food, water, shelter, the most important things to have if things go south, medical supplies, the knowledge of how to use them, a pretty strong second, maybe more than ammo, but I'm biased. Keep this in mind as you put together your stockpile. I'll bet you have your own ideas on what would be useful barter items in a post-apocalyptic world. I've already received recommendations by readers and listeners to include booze, cigarettes, lighters, and other items like that. If you have some others you'd like to share with me, let me know your thoughts. This is Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, check out more than 1,500 free articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus an entire line of quality medical kits designed by yours truly at doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Hey, we often get questions from our listeners and those of our friend Jack Spierko of the Venerable Survival Podcast, a granddaddy of all survival internet programs. This one addresses an issue that affects many males as they get older, inflammation of the prostate. So here we go. Today's question comes from an anonymous listener who we'll call Andy. He writes, Doc Bones, I'm 51 years old and in relatively good health. Earlier this year, I had problems with urinary flow and some erectile dysfunction issues, so I met with a urologist. I used to run local races and some half marathons, wow, up until COVID, but I'm a fat skinny person these days and sit at a computer all day. Six feet, 195 pounds. Not bad, Andy, not bad at all. My urologist did a few tests and measurements and determined my prostate was moderately inflamed. PSA level was well within normal range. That's a blood test that may identify prostate cancer in some cases. We discussed diet, which surprised me. My doctor suggested cutting caffeine down to one drink a day. I was drinking a coffee in the morning, tea around lunch, and soda or tea with dinner, usually a total of four to five drinks. He also put me on alfuzazin, 
That's also called uh, urotrexol, I think. Uh, after a few days, I had side effects. My legs and lower back began aching. The longer I was on it, the worse it became until I had trouble sleeping. I stopped taking it and followed up with the doctor. It took a couple of days for the side effects to wear off. On my follow-up visit to the doctor, he measured my prostate again and said it was less inflamed. I told him about my problem with alfuzazin, so he put me on tamsulazin. That's also called Flomax. This time I took it for a few weeks and began having the same side effects, but the pain was nearly all over my body. It was the same achiness like before, but it just wasn't in the legs and lower back. It hurt all over my body this time, and I could not find a comfortable position. I was in less pain if I walked around when compared to sitting or laying down. So when I was sure it was the side effect of the tamsulosin, I stopped taking it. This time, it took about a week for the side effects to wear off and feel better. I saw a correlation. The longer it took for the onset of side effects, the longer it took for them to dissipate. After about a month of limiting my caffeine, my urinary flow is much better and the erectile dysfunction issue has gone away despite the fact that I'm not taking the medicine. I thought this would be a good to share with the TSP community because I've never heard of a connection between prostate issues and too much caffeine. I would also be interested in any advice or words of wisdom you might have to share. I appreciate your generous time to the community. Thank you, Andy. Well, you're very welcome. The prostate gland's normal size is about the size of a walnut, I'd say, uh, located just below the bladder in men and surrounds the top portion of the urethra. That's the tube that drains urine from the body. The prostate and other sex glands produce a fluid called semen that transports sperm along during ejaculation. Andy, at your age, men begin to experience enlargement of the prostate, a condition known as benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. This can cause issues with urinary flow and possibly erectile dysfunction, although not as much, at least early. And you are, indeed, awfully young for prostate cancer, so a blood test like the PSA being within normal range pretty much makes that a very unlikely diagnosis. So let's assume your doctor's diagnosis is correct. You have some kind of inflammation in the prostate instead, and we call that prostatitis. Prostatitis often causes painful or difficult urination, as well as pain in the groin, pelvic area, or even genitals. Bacterial infections cause some, but not all cases of prostatitis. It can come all of a sudden, or it can be a chronic problem. Some people have an inflamed prostate without even knowing it. It could be asymptomatic. You don't mention how the doctor ruled out a bacterial infection, but you weren't offered antibiotics, so. Caffeine is pretty well known to cause a number of issues, so let's talk about that. It affects the prostate in the following ways. It aggravates an enlarged prostate, worsening symptoms by increasing the rate of urine production, boosting the urge to urinate frequently, that's called frequency, and the sudden and intense need to urinate, that's called urgency. Andy, you didn't mention how your prostate compares in size to the average size prostate. You just mentioned it was inflamed, so let's assume it's not very enlarged. Caffeine can also cause discomfort in the very lower part of the abdomen. It can lead to dehydration, a bad thing for any kind of GU or genital urinary function issues in general, including all the way up to the kidneys, by the way. And as in your case, it indeed can increase prostatic inflammation and make it difficult to urinate. So it's reasonable to limit your intake of coffee, tea, and sodas unless they're caffeine-free or at least caffeine-limited. Now, being older than you, I've had my share of prostate issues. I've been offered Tamsulosin also, that's called Flomax, and Alfluozosin, Uretraxel. 
These drugs work to treat benign prostatic hyperplasia, BPH, in adult men by relaxing the muscles in your prostate and bladder, which can reduce the symptoms and improve your quality of life and your ability to urinate. As with all medicines, however, there are indeed side effects, which affect some people more than others. After reading the possible side effects, which by the way, they are numerous and which you have experienced some, I decided not to take either of these medicines and just soldier on. Your letter just confirms my personal opinion, but I will say that some men swear by one or the other of these medicines, and it might help indeed avoid or at least delay invasive surgical procedures in elderly men. Despite that, some simple lifestyle changes like decreasing caffeine intake can indeed make a difference as it did in your case. Consider yourself lucky that all you needed was a little tincture of time, that's T-I-M-E, and that it worked for you. Some additional things that I would add here, Andy, is to make sure that you know how your doctor knows that you just have inflammation but not infection. If infection hasn't been ruled out, it should because you could need antibiotics for a while, up to several weeks. Of course, if you're experiencing pain, consider ibuprofen or, or acetaminophen, that's Advil, Motrin, or Tylenol, and also make sure that they follow up at your doctor's office with non-invasive tests like sonograms to monitor the prostate over time. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about Off-Grid Medical Topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. 